0: Good morning. Good morning. We always look forward to returning here. I um, uh, so appreciate the uh, the culture of hopes and dreams that I hear cultivated here. Uh, it's so important in times like these. I um, I feel like that if we could see that dread has no ability uh, to survive, if we can ascend into the the clear, pure atmosphere of dreams. And so, so appreciate what I heard earlier. And thanks for uh, recommending the book to everyone. You can find it on Amazon.com. We would have brought some with us, uh, but we ran out and only have a few left that uh, uh, we need to to send out to other people. Uh, we only have one problem with uh, Byron and Becky. My wife and I only have one problem with them. And that is is that we don't get to see them enough. And I mean that with all sincerity. Uh, we uh, look forward to coming here, but uh, the span of time between seeing one another is far too long as far as I'm concerned, and we're going to see what we can do about that. Uh, we have some other friends that have come in from around uh, the state. Uh, I'm not sure where all of them are, are seated, but so thank you. for. And I met someone as I was coming in that had stumbled on one of our podcasts and said uh, that they live, I believe, in Concord and said that they uh, were going to come check us out. So I hope all goes well. <laughs> I want to invite you to turn with me, if you will, to 1 John and chapter 4. Just two verses uh, I want to share with you. 1 John chapter 4, probably familiar to most of you. But I intend on saying some things, maybe that may have uh, some shocking value to it, which I have a reputation for that, from time to time. First uh, John four eighteen and nineteen. There's no fear in love, but perfect fear cast perfect love cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because we were first loved. Now, I want to talk to you about indiscriminate love. Whenever we pair those two words, they really don't seem to harmonize with one another, especially as it relates to our very limited understanding of unconditional love to be specific. I, in the last few months, have been wondering if Jesus did not come so much to answer our questions as much as he came to question all of our answers, realizing that ignorance is our very deepest secret. It remains our very deepest secret because we fear the answers to certain questions, so we avoid them. Jesus, I believe did not necessarily come to teach us what to think, but how to think. Understanding how easy it is for us to find ourselves in gross darkness, he makes this startling statement on one occasion that the grossest darkness is when the light that is in us becomes darkness. That's very paradoxical, and he was known for that, wasn't he, for making these statements that left people hanging. What do you mean by that? The grossest form of darkness is when the light that is in you becomes darkness. Well, if we are familiar with the Proverbs that speak of how if we walk in the light, or John would say the same thing, but the path of the righteous Shines brighter and brighter until the coming of the full day it is speaking of a constant progression it is not so much about what we have known but what we are willing to know because he doesn't teach us to see what we've learned as if he doesn't already know what we know but he continues to test us and to teach us to see if we're still willing to learn are you with me so far now, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time talking about the author of this particular epistle, 1 John, other than to say it's obvious that he has a very unique relationship with Jesus among the others that followed him, Those, the 12 in particular that were chosen. Uh, it's very clear that there's even not only the way that he refers to himself as being a disciple whom Jesus loved in third person but also he is known for his very body language of leaning upon the breast of Jesus. His writing style is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I will pause here long enough to share something that I heard Francois Dutois say not long ago. He said he went, was going into prisons and distributing Bibles, and... Um, he went into this particular prison that he'd never been in before with a case of Bibles, left it for the prisoners, came back a few weeks later and said, um, so where are you guys in your reading of the Gospels? And they said, well, they remember it's a prison uh, environment. Said, well, we ran out of rolling papers. You already know where this is going, don't you? And he said, so we smoked Matthew and we smoked Mark and we smoked Luke. He said, but when we got to John, we decided to read the gospel of John. And ever since then, we've not been smoking anymore. That's pretty clever, I thought. So anyway, John is the one who is known as being the one who Jesus loved. He speaks to himself of himself in third person quite consistently. He leans upon the breast of Jesus. He is present at the crucifixion, the only one. Out of the 12 that had the courage to accompany Mary, the mother of Jesus, there at the crucifixion. And he is given the responsibility for caring for the mother of Jesus. And he is also given this promise in uh, those last words of Jesus before his ascension that he would have longevity. And he did outlive all the others. As a matter of fact, he didn't die of natural causes or or the causes that we would think, I should say. Uh, They tried to boil him in oil, and he wouldn't even boil in oil. (laughs) So they put him on this first-century Alcatraz, the island of Patmos, thinking that maybe he he will die at the hands of the other criminals that have been consigned there, or maybe he'll die of heat stroke in the blistering sun out there in the middle of the Mediterranean. But he didn't die that way when they put him out there on the Isle of Patmos, One day he gets up and the Spirit and the presence of God comes on him so powerfully and he looks up into the heavens and the heavens unroll like a scroll and he sees what we call the revelation, which is this cosmic opera that shows us the entire finished work of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And he doesn't just see those things that relate to the end time as we talk about, but he sees it from the beginning to the end. And as you can tell, I feel myself drifting into wanting to talk more about this man's profile. I have spent more time in his letters in the last few months than in all of my lifetime in ministry because I, I feel it's so compelling, especially for the hour in which we're living in, because the theme of all themes, the theme of all themes that you will hear as I see it, in the days ahead will have to do with God's unconditional, irresistible, unrelenting love. I think the reason why John had such a unique and mystic approach to the life of Jesus and then also in his letters and and subsequently the revelation is because in pressing his head to the bosom of Jesus he hears resonating in the bosom of Jesus, the heart of the Father. He would even say in John chapter 1 that Jesus came from the bosom of the Father. In other words, there are some things that language cannot capture about God. He would even say later on in uh, uh, the gospel of John chapter 1 that no man had ever seen the Father, which is cause for pause, what about all of those who had those patriarchs that had gone before you mean to tell me that moses had not seen the father and abram had not seen the father and elijah had not seen the father no they hadn't the reason being is because it had been obscured by their false perceptions of what god was really like now that is rather offensive to most people to suggest that these men that who stand head and shoulders above most in the old testament that their perception of God had been obscured. But it had indeed. And so when he says no man had ever seen the Father, and he begins to see that it was in Christ that we see what God is really like. As a friend of mine says that Jesus is perfect theology. Anything else is error. Now, have you ever noticed in your reading, uh, is it okay if I come down there and get closer to you? Have you ever noticed in the reading of John's first epistle, as well as his first gospel, that he starts out with these four words, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In my opinion, those are the four most important words in all of the Bible, in the the beginning God, because this is how the Bible itself opens in Genesis chapter 1. So he is borrowing the language of creation. Now, it's very important that you stay with me in these next few moments, because uh, I am running the risk of being grossly misunderstood with some of the statements that I'm about to make. Now, I'm very familiar with the audience that I'm speaking to, not just because I've been here before, but because I understand the prevailing influence of evangelical Christianity on most all of us that are in this room. And we have had a misconception, a gross misconception, about the entire story of redemption and reconciliation. Because we have assumed that the story of God and man starts with the fall of man. That the fall and failure of man resulted in God revealing himself in unconditional love. The truth is is that God is love, was love, always will be love before there was ever a need for an object of that love. God doesn't love. He doesn't have love. He is love. Now, that may seem incredibly simple, but it is incredibly profound. When we begin to understand that whenever Adam and Eve, the progenitors of the entire human race, the ones that sired all of us regardless of our ethnicity, they are the ones from which we all flowed, that God revealing himself as love was as a result of their terrible and egregious sin in the garden. That's wrong. And if we get that wrong, we get everything else from Genesis to Revelation wrong. Now I'm pausing on purpose because... I understand how that can be rather upsetting to most people. Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever arrived to a movie late, and you get there about 20 minutes in, especially one that is really well done, and you find yourself groping for quite some time, trying your best to grasp the plot? I'm of the opinion that most of us in evangelical Christianity have arrived to the movie late. When John speaks of perfect love and first love, is he just referring to the experience that he had in those three and a half years where he was up close and personal with Jesus The very essence of love. Is that what he's referring to? I tend to believe that he, as he pressed his head to the bosom of Jesus, was able to hear something echoing that predated even the creation of man that was in the heart of the Father from the very beginning. Have you ever wondered why God went to the trouble to create us to begin with? Was it because that in his infinite existence, in eternity past, that he had reached the point that the angels that he had created, the myriad of angels that were around the throne, that he had become a bit bored with their adoration? (laughs) I mean, this has been good for eons, but I'm a little bit bored with them. Is that why he decided to create us, another species? Was it because he had this dream of this planet, the blue ball we call Earth, that is spinning out here in space, and the dream that he had of that, he realized that he needed subcontractors (laughs) that would maintain this planet, this dream that he had. Was it because he was probably more self-absorbed than we realize and he was in need of more affection? So I will create a species that will give me a unique form of affection. I think these are all valid questions. Why would he go to the trouble to begin with? Have you ever asked yourself those questions? You know, sometimes it even almost sounds blasphemous or irreverent for me to suggest to people that God does not desire or require our worship because he is in need of something. Because the kind of love that we're talking about has no need. That is incomprehensible to us. Because most of the gestures even as sincere and genuine as we think they are, that we extend to other people on a horizontal plane deep, deep, deep in our psyche, thinking we might think that it is selfless, but deep in our psyche, the human is waiting for some kind of reciprocation. I mean, even the psychologists would say there is no such thing as altruism. If you're not familiar with the word altruism, they basically are implying that human beings are incapable of giving anything without expecting something in return. And the reason why that's problematic is because we think that we define God. In reality, God defines us. He's totally other than But even though he's totally other than, he was not content to be God by himself, with himself. This is the purpose, the entire purpose for the incarnation. This is the demonstration of what unconditional, are you still tracking with me, of what unconditional love really looks like. So, if we could look at it in this manner, regardless of what your theology is about the oneness of God, we understand that the expression of who he is is clearly the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And in that Trinitarian concept, there is the real insight into what unconditional love looks like and the mutuality of it. And none of them having any needs but giving to one another. So out of that, there comes this desire to have offspring. And that offspring, the purpose of that offspring is not to serve, this this is really counterintuitive, is not to serve them but for them to serve us. There's in the turn in the road where some of you really didn't come with me. (laughs) Have you listened closely to the words of Jesus when he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve? But usually when we reference that passage of Scripture, especially those of us in leadership, it is our intention to manipulate, I mean motivate... (laughs) people because we are in need of more people serving in, a, in the community of believers and it's really a wrong application. I didn't say that Jesus did. He came to serve us. That is incomprehensible that he desires to serve me. But that's what unconditional love does because it doesn't need anything in return. Now, you are at least somewhat familiar, I'm sure, with the account that we are given of the creation of man. And when he forms man, like a sculptus, and this is the implication, this is the picture that we have. If you look in between the margins, you will see that he is literally sculpting this crown jewel of his creation that he will call Adam, man. And if you remember, after he had filled his lungs with inspiration, this is what God breathes means. He inflated him, and his eyes flutter for the first time. And inside of him is the woman. God created them in this manner to reflect the unity that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had. The reason why he didn't create them two separate entities is because he wanted to give us an understanding of the union that God intended in the very beginning. That's the reason why Jesus in John chapter 17 will pray for oneness. He is not praying for ecumenical ecumenical oneness and unity. When he is praying, Father, make them one as you and I are one. And he goes on and he says, Lord, I want you to give them the glory that I had with you before the world was. He is praying this in a garden because this sense and consciousness of union was lost in a garden. What Jesus is praying for there is not that these quibbling disciples who had been arguing hours before as to who would sit on the right hand or the left, that's not what he's not praying for that kind of unity. No, he's praying for something to be restored that was lost from the very beginning. You still there? So when he inflates this prototype of all of humanity the first time, the first thing that he sees is the one who created him, which is unconditional love. Now, here's where it gets a bit tricky for some people. Because the first thing that he will say, he will, it will say that, that he blessed them. Now, that seems to be a rather innocent word, that he blessed them. But if you find its counterpart... In the New Testament, it is the same word from which we derive the word worship or to adore. Which makes sense if he has been doing the work of a sculptor and the Son of God even then became a Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. And he's fashioning it. He is already on his knees before his own creation adoring it. So the purpose of worship is not to enhance or to increase our sense of insecurity and inadequacy. It is to restore the original image that we had in the beginning. No, no, wait a minute. I, I thought this was all about me cowering before him. No, it's not about us cowering. Uh, Let me put it to you in a a little more practical sense. Uh, Whenever you had your first child and you are looking at this being that in reality was made in your image, you didn't look at this child that you brought forth from your body that was the product of your love and say, I can't wait for you to mature enough where you can be totally absorbed and enamored with me. Do you get my point? Yeah. The reason why that this does not work for most of us is because we fear unconditional love. We We fear unconditional love, and we, especially here in the West, have a love affair with fear. Fear is epidemic, it's airborne, it's the news that is constantly assaulting your consciousness. That holds you in captivity to an illusion rather than the original image in which we were made in. Back to this whole idea, is this making sense to you? Back to this whole idea of union. Remember, the, when God resuscitated this man, because God is neither male nor female, he's both and he breathed into the nostrils of this prototype, and he became a living soul. The woman was within him. The only reason why he separated them is so that they could procreate in their image in the same way he had created them in his. So he didn't want a project manager. He didn't want somebody to manage this planet this dream of his, no. He wanted to multiply his image because that is the nature of unconditional love. It cannot help itself. It wants to multiply. But see, for thousands of years up until Jesus and even still today this lie is maintained We're not, we say we love God, but we're not, if we're really honest, we're not really sure whether we like Him or not. He's not very likable. I know this is problematic, what I'm getting ready to say for a lot of people, but I'm going to tell you that I am being approached almost weekly now with the same question from different parts of the country, from the East Coast to the West Coast, and now throughout the world, especially among those who are the millennials, that are not content just to parrot answers, that are not content just to walk in lockstep with a previous generation, to do what they are told to do. And many of us, have interpreted that as being disrespect and questioning authority. In reality, we are the ones that are responsible for teaching them how to think for themselves. But here is one of the major problems. When I look at the new covenant, when I look at these closing books... Of the Bible. And I understand the canon of Scripture is not necessarily as inspired as the content itself. But the arrangement of the Scripture, these last books of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Revelation, and Jude is slipped in there. What is the emphasis? The emphasis is on his love. Even the book of Revelation, believe it or not, is not about some apocalyptic event that is cataclysmic in nature. The last book of the Bible is more about the great and glorious imagery of the finished work of Christ. It is not about the Antichrist. It never has been about the Antichrist, but it's about the Christ. Here's the question. How do I harmonize? This bloodthirsty God of the Old Testament. How do I do that that requires genocide? Such graphic language as, You took delight in their infants' brains being smashed against the rocks. Now, I think probably I've got at least a few more people's attention. <laughs> How do I harmonize that? How do I harmonize that if Jesus, as Paul would say, that the glory of God did shine in the face of Jesus? Or he would say, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead body. In who? In this man, Jesus of Nazareth, that walked the planet, who did not come offering evil for evil who bless those who cursed him. How's your theology doing so far? I've been, I have been confronted with this question lately. All right, you tell me that God gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so you tell me that God is love, and then you turn around and tell me that this same God killed his own son. It's a fair question. (laughs) And there is an answer that will handle that right early as far as I'm concerned because I've struggled with that one myself. You see, first of all, we've got to understand that in the beginning it was not God that abandoned man or left man. It was man who left God. Because he will even come pursuing them, asking them where they are as if he didn't know, giving them the dignity of responding. Paul would say God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It did not say that God needed to be reconciled to the world. Now, make sure you hear the difference there. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It did not say that God needed to be reconciled to the world because he had never been unreconciled with the world. Paul got it when he says there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Now, see, you think that's just a new new covenant reality. No, that was true of his essence, his nature from the beginning. See, otherwise, it's not unconditional. See, here's where we get into this idea of inclusion that scares so many people to death. And we like to feel that we're included and others are excluded. And I wonder if you've ever taken a close look at the way Jesus handled that issue. Because you won't see him excluding anyone. So how do I handle this thing? Wait a minute. It was the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus. How do I reconcile the love of God and the wrath of God? Has that ever been a question in your mind? How do I reconcile the two? Well, you've been telling me it's unconditional love, but it looks like he gets pissed off too. (laughs) The real issue is understanding what happened in the cross. Really what happened in the cross. Peter would stand up on the day of Pentecost and he would confront those that were questioning the legitimacy of what happened in this great outpouring of the Spirit. And he would say, you are the ones that murdered him. And he was correct. Now, see, the thing that I think is so incredibly amazing, pardon the adjectives, but it is incredibly amazing to consider that this love, which the Song of Solomon would say, is stronger than death. A love that is stronger than death would allow itself in its unconditionality to be killed knowing that you cannot Kill it! You see, we 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 have these, uh, you know, we have these passages that have been given to us in the accepted canon of scripture that just shows us the appearances that Jesus made to certain people in His resurrection body. But do you know that there hi, there is historical evidence? There's verifiable historical evidence, just as accurate as the Bible itself, that Jesus also made appearances to Pilate, the man that signed his death warrant, and he was converted. He appears to Annas and Caiaphas. That's what love does. Now think about this. If you murdered me, Matthew... And there was incontrovertible evidence that you killed me willfully, maliciously, intentionally. It was premeditated. It's there. And you are convicted in a court of law. And I'm put in a grave. And my widow comes and my family comes and weeps over me. But if I get up from the grave, then the law has no demands any longer. You can't be tried twice for the, second, for the same crime. That's called double jeopardy. Most of us still have this thing in the back of our mind that we're still going to be tried twice for the same crime. The genius of this is love is stronger. That's in Song of Solomon, right? That love is stronger than death. You cannot kill it. You kill it, it will will get up from the grave in resurrection power and pursue the criminal. That's what reconciliation looks like. See, this is what the real gospel is. And I promise you, if you are hearing someone that proclaims that they are preaching the gospel and it doesn't cause your mind to say that is too good to be true, then you're not hearing the gospel. You're not, you've never heard the gospel. I say this all the time, but most of us study the Bible to prove what we already believe. We're looking for proof text. We don't realize that there's no no such thing as unbiased thought. That you came in here today with certain bias. And there's certain things even about my appearance that are affecting your ability. I'm not saying that to be critical. There are certain things about my appearance, my matterisms, my idiosyncrasies that are lurking in deep in your psyche that are influencing your ability to hear and to receive and to perceive. The word in the beginning, the word beginning there, the root word there means to shake the head. And when you really begin to see God's original intent, which has always been unconditional Love, it will shake your head. It will rattle everything that you have ever believed. We have mistakenly believed that he would love us if we would change without understanding that his love is what changes us. We get all up in arms about the terrible immorality that is so widespread, and I'm not soft on sin, that is so widespread, and we don't understand that the real thing that activates transformation is unconditional love. We would even go so far as saying that I love the person but I hate the sin and I'm sorry that will not fly, that will not float because they are convinced that this is their identity. So they cannot separate the two. But see, we have so minimized and marginalized unconditional love until we can't possibly see how that, because it's weak, it's anemic, it's soft. How could that ever bring about transformation? It's the only thing that will bring about genuine, sustained transformation. I mean, look at Jesus. He is the embodiment of the Father. If you had seen me, you would have seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. And look how he responds to those things that are threatening. Look how he responds to those things that are critical in nature. See, we here in the West, and here's, here's where I really get in trouble with the political climate heating up right now. We don't understand that, uh, that God is, first of all, he's not a white man, as Michael Gunger says. He's not a white man. He's not an old man. He's not an American. He's not a flag. He's not patriotism. He's none of those things. Yet through our grid, we perceive him in that way. You're going to have a hard time harmonizing what you see in the gospel that Jesus brought in the warmongering that we endorse in the name of democracy. Wow, I shouldn't have gone there, (laughs) but I did. Because they're trying to kill him, what does he do? Love has the power just to walk through the midst of them. Immune to their hatred. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's in the realm of the Spirit, it's not in the flesh. this is what perfect love looks like. And what did, he, what did the text say? This is what cast out fear. Most of us, we again have this love affair with fear. And really, when we get down to the root of it, it has to do with our need to be in control. And no matter what you've been taught about what spiritual authority looks like, control is nothing more than an illusion. I can't control what you do, what you say. I can't control what the economy does. I can't control any of these things on the exterior. I only have control over one thing, and that's how I let it affect my world. What I just described to you is, in essence, the way Jesus lived as a real human supposed to live. A real human. And as he was, so are we in this world. And anything else is antichrist. Oh, wait a minute. You use that word antichrist. Isn't he in the Middle East somewhere, tucked away, being groomed? No. You brought him to the meeting this morning. I brought him to the meeting. He sits in the very temple of God. The word temple there is not some physical temple in Thessalonians. It's not some physical temple. The word temple that he uses there is the same word that Paul uses when he says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's the exact same word. And so he says, This man of sin, the son of perdition, a.k.a. the Antichrist, he is against Christ which is not his last name. He's not Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. He was Jesus of Nazareth. We are the body of Christ. He is against us connecting with this revelation that comes from the head, which will fill us with the power of unconditional love. So he sits in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God, exalting himself above everything that is God opposing everything that is God. And so what is God? What is he? Is he theology? Is that what he is? No. He's love. <laughs> this, is what, this is what totally and completely does away with fear. Why is it that you think over and over again, probably one of the most stated stated phrases from the Old Testament all the way through the New, every time God would show up, what would he say? Don't be afraid. afraid. (laughs) Because the first human emotion that was ever felt was fear. And it is the parent emotion of every other fear. You angry? You depressed? Are you? See, that's that one, when we get confronted with that one, I got confronted with that last night. It's the primal human emotion. And everything else is a symptom. Are you kidding me? You mean when I get angry, it's fear? Yeah, it is. It's fear. Because you can't control an outcome. Because somebody said something to you that was an assault against your persona and not your real person but who you think you are instead of who you really are. And, it, and it's an assault against your ego, which your ego is this illusional state of who you are at the surface and not who you really are. Yeah. Carl Jung says it is the ego edging God out. It keeps suppress the reality of the image of God inside of you. And so you learn how to act, and I'm out of time. You learn how to act and react and survive in human relationships based on I'm I'm beginning as I grow in this relationship to determine those things I can and cannot say to you that keep us both on an even plane. And so really what we do is we have not a relationship but a fantasy. And eventually the circumstances are going to be present where you can't any longer project that persona. And when it surfaces, you're going to say about that individual or they might say about you, I've never seen that side of them before. (laughs) Which really means that you had a fantasy and not a friendship because you had created them in your image, that's what fear does. Because it's not always overt; it's very covert. It's very subtle. It's as diff. It's mercurial in nature. It's as difficult as ne- trying to nail jello to a tree. You know, it, really, I mean, it is that subtle and deceptive, and you don't really realize how much of it is still lurking. In you. But perfect love. The perfection of love. And the word perfect there, teleos, which has to do with time. God set all this in motion because of his ultimate intention was to reconcile us to himself. It'd be a pretty sad thing to believe that God set all this in motion if he is infinite and if he is omniscient and knows all things. Do you believe he knows all things? Do you really believe he knows all things? It's pretty sad, isn't it? To think that if he knew all things and before he took that first exhale to the lungs of the first man that this was going to set in motion the tragedy that we call the human race if he didn't have in his end plan the ultimate unconditional love that is going to reconcile it all to himself yeah. now some of you are saying well yeah there's a lot of scriptures yeah you know isn't that interesting in that entry, there's a lot of scriptures that start popping up that seems to be contradictory to the very nature of God, most of which are things that are sound bites that we have allowed man to say about God, which are not necessarily true. And the go ahead and stand. I already said I'm past my time. I came with the intentions of being done in 30 minutes, I've taken 41. <laughs> You remember, you remember the book of Job? Which we've missed the point of the book of Job. In the book of Job, when you get over to the latter chapters, God gets fed up. If that's possible. Because three... Three friends, so-called friends of Job, had been analyzing Job's situation. From a faulty perception of what God was like, this must be happening to you. I'm getting ready to help somebody. This, must, this has got to be happening to you because of either something you did or something that was lurking in your bloodline. And finally, God had had enough. And He interrupted Him. He said, I'm tired of them lying about me. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah. Jeremiah would say the same thing. Jeremiah would say, God is weary of the lying pen of the prophets. Does God need anger management or something? Maybe we are going to disagree on a lot, but this is one thing I don't think any of us can disagree on, is that Jesus is perfect theology. Hmm? Jesus is what God looks like. He even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the wonderful thing to me about it is that the incarnation, we, th- we think it lasted only 33 and a half years. But the decision about the incarnation took place before the womb of creation because he was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Do you think that, you know, whenever they looked into the future, they concluded God the Father, Son, and Spirit are sitting around and they're talking. You know what? This is kind of a risk to create this new species called man. Because we know what they're going to do. So they get in this discussion. Well, when they do this, one of us is going to have to take on disgusting flesh. But it's only for 33 years. What is that for eternal beings? And Jesus says, well, I'll do it. (laughs) One of us has got to do it. So I'll do it. I'll become a disgusting human being for 33 and a half years to redeem the situation. No, not that at all. He's always been Emmanuel. God with us, now in us. I created quite a stir. You go ahead and play, that helps me. I created quite a stir this past week, been getting a little pushback, when I said that, you know, evangelism is not so much about emphasizing how lost people are but helping them to understand how loved they are. Because with all due respect, me included, most of the people in this room right now are lost. I I, I didn't question your relationship with God. I know you love God but you still haven't understood how much He loves you. And you don't understand that it was first love was not when you first felt it, when you first became conscious of it. What John was talking about there in first love, he was talking about what I've been describing for the last few minutes. There's My wife on the way up here reminded me... Can I have some of that water down there? My wife on the way up here reminded me that it was five years ago today that I was in Christchurch, New Zealand in a 6.3 earthquake. Occurred just as I was being introduced to a group of pastors. <laughs> Five years ago today. And you say, what, what does that have to do with anything? I really believe that there is coming, and I know this word has been overused, misused, and even abused. There is coming a seismic shift that is unlike anything we have ever seen that we won't have language for. Because if you can define it, you'll confine it. And that's the problem with most of our doctrines. We have have adequately defined it and we have put it in human language. That's why Wesley said, oh, for a thousand tongues. What kind of hyperbole is that? Oh, for a thousand tongues. The man recognized with all of the encounters and the revelation that he had of who Jesus was that there are not, there's not linguistics
1: adequate enough.
0: That's why when we leave meetings like this, our heads should be spinning, but our hearts should be pounding. My question to you is would you rather have, listen, would you rather have a heart that makes love or a mind that makes sense? I choose the former, a heart that makes love. Because the very minute it all makes sense to me, it becomes idolatry. I really believe what the Lord wants to do here. Uh, you got a ministry team that can come here this morning. And I'll remain as long as they will. Just one real quick story. I'm nine minutes over now, if you're keeping time. Uh, in November, I was in uh, China and Taiwan. And while in Taiwan, for several days, I was speaking in a school with students. Now, I don't know how much. You, you go to China a lot, don't you? And you share with them the culture there. They're very stoic. If there's anything, there is a real issue with father issues, right? Because it's all a performance-based. That's the reason why they've excelled the way they have, their economy has. So I'd been speaking for several days to over 200 students that ranged from 20-something-year-olds to my age and older. And uh, on about the fourth day, about 10 minutes into it, the presence of God came into the room, and they began to leap to their feet and worship God just radically. And I, uh, this was in Taipei, and I, I left the platform, and my interpreter couldn't keep up with me. And all I did was I walked among them embracing them and when I would take them in my arms they would collapse sobbing convulsively they couldn't understand a word I was saying when, this went on for over two hours and the leader of the school there Jonathan Chow told me he said I've been praying for this for 12 years he said do you realize what, this is, what a shift this is in our culture It's coming. It's coming. Yeah. Lord, we don't fear new experiences. Lord, we're not afraid that maybe some of the things that we have thought were so important weren't really important at all. (laughs) Kind of reminds me of Mark Twain. He, He said, it's not the things you don't know that give you trouble. It's the stuff you're so certain of that just isn't so. So, Lord we thank you for that this morning we thank you for embrace I, I resonate so much with what you said earlier that there's a, a new season that many people are coming into and you can even begin to feel it I mean I, you can't I'm not trying to spiritualize this but this morning I could tell that the season is changing spring is I think it's going to get here closer than most of you realize and those of you that have gone through really 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 long winters there's hope in the air I can smell the scent of rain. I can smell the flowers even before they break up through the ground. (laughs) Yeah, for those who've been through a long winter, those of you that have questioned God's love for you and God has just thumped you in the heart this morning, come on right now and we're here to pray for you.
1: I hope your head is spinning, because mine is. So I need some people's heads to spin with me. That was really powerful. Pray that God will give you a download of his love before you leave this place today. Just let your let your mind go and let your heart be open to what he was sharing. I'd like the guys to come up and receive the offering uh, for Randall. Right quick, like. That was amazing. Well, now let's give Randall a big hand. I really like it when somebody shares something and it really sort of challenges stuff you believe, that you don't even know you believe, but it really brings a challenge to you. And that's really what a teacher, a real teacher should do. He should, come on, Dave, let's do it. Go ahead and pass those out. It's to really get us to question what we really believe about God's love especially. Thank you, Lord. Just like I say, you just want to give and generously give and we'll give it all to randall and as soon as you give if you want to come up and start receiving prayer uh but i want to just pray lord thank you this morning thank you for sending randall thank you for such an amazing revelation that he carries and for stretching us stretching our hearts this morning lord to really receive more revelation of your love lord to know you lord in a greater way that's our that's our desire is to know know the only true god and jesus christ whom he sent and i ask you lord that every person in this room that would just catch on fire lord for you and for a relationship with you today to know that love and to not be satisfied where we're at lord i just ask you to do that lord in the name of jesus amen God bless you. You know, come up and receive prayer. Amen.